0: Hi, this is Lorraine Newman, and you're listening to TV Confidential.
1: Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, a radio talk show about television that will bring you something old and something new this week. Working backwards, our second hour will include part two of a conversation that began earlier this month with nationally known ad writer Michael Shevik. Michael Shevik, the man behind the iconic slogan for Gillette Razors, Gillette, the best a man can get. The Gillette The best a man can get jingle is still recognized today in countries all over the world. We'll ask Michael how he came up with it. We'll also talk about a new book by Michael Shevek that suggests that many of the problems facing America today can be solved through better spiritual health. Michael Shevek will join us in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that later on. In this hour, we will bring you an encore presentation of a conversation that originally aired in March 2019 with Will Ryan, Nick Santa Maria, and Michael Schlesinger. Will and Nick are the stars, and Mike is the writer, producer, and director of The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster, a collection of 1930s-style comedies that pay homage to the Three Stooges, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, and other vintage comedy teams that was not only nominated for two Rondo Awards, but spawned a popular series of comic books, as well as the Biffle & Schuster Guide to Etiquette, a book of humor that we'll tell you more about when we replay our conversation with Will Ryan, Nick Santa Maria, and Michael Schlesinger later on in this hour. We hope you stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us via Zoom as we welcome Emmy-nominated comedy writer Jim Abel. Jim spent about three years as a staff writer for Roman and Martin's Laugh-In, plus he wrote for other TV shows and specials during the 1970s, including Don't Call Me Mama Anymore, a CBS special starring Mama Cassie. He also wrote one of the first comedy albums recorded by Lily Tomlin. Plus, he wrote comedy bits for the Doobie Brothers that the group performed during their live Southern tour in 1973. We're happy to have Jim on our program today to talk about his comedy writing career and more. Jimmy Bell, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ed. It's nice to be here. I understand that you first got your foot in the door of comedy writing, as a result of a chance meeting with Harvey Korman that took place at Schwab's drugstore in Hollywood.
2: That's that's true. It wasn't a chance happening. I went there looking for somebody to some way to break into television. And uh, the Carol Burnett show was one of my favorite shows to watch. And sitting there in Schwab's, I would drive from Litton Industries where I was a technical illustrator beat Pete over the hill and, and go into Schwab's because Schwab's was famous. This is how naive I was as a kid. Schwab's is where Lana Turner was discovered. <laughs> and I thought, well, so, so a lot of people go there to, you know, it's, it's a Hollywood hangout place at lunchtime. I heard. So I went there and of course I was lucky. Harvey Corman and a couple of gentlemen were sitting a, at a booth laughing it up and having a good time and all the other people in there weren't paying any attention to him because they're used to celebrities. I was like, oh, my God, what do I do? Do I'm not going to embarrass myself. Finally, when he got up by to pay the check, he nodded to me, and I, you know, acknowledged him. And then when he got to the cash register, as soon as he handed her the credit card, I said, excuse me, Harvey, I'm a really big fan of you and the show. I'm an aspiring comedy writer, and I I don't know where to send any material, how to break in, but if I could send you something, four or five quick one-line jokes, and you grade them with a grade like ABC, you know, just like in school, but don't put your name or don't make criticism or just, just write a grade on each one of them. And I would, don't send it in an envelope, put your name on it or anything like that. It'll be anonymous. And he said, Well, that sounds pretty fair, actually. Okay, here's my card. And man, I was on top of the world right there. I sent him the material. And 10 days, I got a reply back from him, which is, I got your stuff. It's very funny. I showed it to our, uh, our head writer, and he said, well, it is funny, and he's probably going to get a job before next season. But if we don't have our staff by next season, we will definitely hire him. Tell him that. So he told me that, and I was like, I was on top of the world. And so uh, in the meantime... I, uh, is, is that too much information? No, that's no. no I, I was that's just, amazing. I,
1: I, uh, yes, it's it's amazing, and it's. I don't think that's something you could probably do today because no way.
0: Well, I tried it today, but nobody was there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Schwab's is a Trader Joe's now. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly.
2: So, a special came on the laughing special. And that's when I zeroed in on the idea. It was going to be a series, I heard. So there was a Laugh-In magazine started up by the Team Beat and Tiger Beat magazine guy. And uh, so I wrote a bunch of stuff, and I got an appointment with uh, George Aiken's, who was the head writer of the comic book. I was that was going to be great for me if I could get the comic book job of Laugh-In comic took it to George Aiken and he looked at it and he said, hey, you know what, Jim, I know Paul Keyes, he's the head writer and producer of Laughing, the real magazine, the real show, not the magazine. I'm gonna, if you want, I'm gonna give him a call and tell, tell him he should, uh, let me send him some stuff. So I I said, sure. So he called and uh, I, I mailed the stuff to him, to uh, Paul Keyes. So about a week went by and I hadn't heard anything, which I figured must be a lot of people sending stuff, trying to get a job. and. So I called him up, and when the phone rang there, it was uh, answered by Galilea Matthews, Paul Key's secretary. She's in Mr. Key's office, Slaughter Friendly Productions, George Slaughter Ned Friendly. Hi, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm Jimmy Abel, Jimmy Abel. She goes, Paul, yells into the inner office, Paul, it's, it's Jimmy Abel. Like she was making, I thought she was making fun of me, like, oh, stop. And so he comes out of the office and he goes, get in here, kid. He said, we were just across the street from Slaughter Friendly Productions, and I know it's a restaurant you left the other day. It's a Smokehouse. The Smokehouse, yeah. Smokehouse, yeah. And so he said, we were all over, all the writers in, and the head writer and I were over at the, the Smokehouse having lunch, and Paul Key said, I remembered one of your lines, and I said it, and I got a big laugh. So I said another one. And I said, what, well, you have them in front the of you? And he said, no, I just remembered them. I, I didn't think I had them memorized, I only read them once. And so he said, I, I, I said all of them, and George Slaughter said, okay, Paul, who is this? Is writing this week, but I sent them to our staff. So they called me up, and I was like, I couldn't believe it, but I went over there to, to like Slaughter Friendly Productions and met up with them, and what a great bunch of people. And he said, what we're going to do is, again, we filled up our, our writing staff. If you will accept it, we're going to have you on board so you don't go somewhere else, but we're going to have you be a researcher for the show. You'll go over to NBC News across the alleyway and get things off the hot wire and all that kind of stuff. I said, sure. And he told me how much it would pay, not as much as a writer, but he said, at least you know, it, it'll be worth staying around. As soon as one of the new writers don't work out and believe me, every season, every half season, they can and someone else. I said, whatever you do, that's fine with me. So he said, well, that, that's the deal then. Can you start Monday? I said, well, yes, I can start Monday. And so... Uh, as I walked out the door, I could hardly believe it. As I walked out the George Slaughter's office, I hear, uh, just a minute, Jimmy, I turn around, and Paul Key says, don't ever come to work dressed like that again, okay? And what I had is I was in the aerospace thing. I had a <laughs> you know, a shirt tie and, and the whole links and all that kind of stuff. He was joking with me, of course, but believe me, I never went to work again, a suit and a tie.
1: Jim Abel is with us via Zoom today, along with Tony Figueroa and Don Allen. Jim Abel, longtime staff writer for Rowan and Martin's Laughing. It sounds like it was a very welcoming, laid-back environment to work in. Although we've talked about this many times on the on the show, Laughing itself, it was a 60-minute show that had like two hours of material edited in every week. So I can see why they went through a lot of writers every half. Because that's a lot of ideas to, to come up with every week.
0: Also, the content of Laugh-In was very different than the Carol Burnett show or even the Smothers Brothers show at that time, because it was so fast. And yeah. was it considered
1: counterculture?
2: Well, there was a lot of protesting going on because of the Vietnam War, and uh, Nixon was president, so there was controversy. Smothers Brothers really took the lead first, but we overpowered them because we did a lot of crazy stuff they didn't do, and so. I used to go over there and get the news feeds, which would be looked at by the writers, hey we can make a joke out of this, we can make a joke out of that. And so that was great, and one day, but I kept writing stuff and turning it in. And so one day Paul came over to my little cubbyhole, and he said, darn you Jim, you got us in trouble. And I went, oh my God, I mean I took everything seriously, you know, I didn't think people joke like that about careers. but anyway." I said, what's, what's up? And he said, well, we like so many of your bits, this last group you turned in, we we'll put them on a taping schedule and you're in the writer's credits. Congratulations. And I was like, wow, I had a, a small son at home and, and my wife I, mean, I called her on the phone. And it was like, we're going to celebrate. And we did. And uh,
0: so that's how that started. What were some of the typical news items that you would take off the wire? And I imagine this was the old Rip and Read UPI AP machine. It, it
2: was, exactly. And some of them you couldn't make a joke about. For example, I remember when the, the Kent State shootings happened. Mm-hmm. And so George said, "We'll give it a try, you guys, to all the writers. It's not a joke, but we seem to need to say something about it. And uh, I think we wound up doing a couple of remarks, but... We Gary Owens go, There's a, a score, a sports score just in. Penn State, four, and the National Guard, zero. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh brilliant. Ouch. But it's not something you want to put a laugh track on. Right. Which brings a point about laugh tracks that I'd like to mention. Before I even started writing television, I'd be watching TV. There'd be a joke, which I didn't think was very good. My parents didn't laugh, or if I was married, my wife didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. But they had a great laugh track. And I thought, I want to see the show they recorded this laugh track from. And I'll bet you the money it was like I Love Lucy, who got good, strong audience laugh, but was courageous enough to do a live audience. Laughing did live audience, too, in Studio 4 of NBC. There was plenty of room for all the stuff. And then room for about 250 tourists, really. We called them the blue hair set, because we were young and they were old. (laughs) That's the way it goes, but one of the things, they'd come in by the bus loads and load up, and we'd start going and they'd say to themselves, I don't remember this being up in the front of the show, and then they'd say, wait a minute, uh, we've been here an hour and a half and the show's only an hour long and we're still working on the same bit, what, what's going on? And it's like they didn't realize it was, like you just said, four hours of material and edited it down to... Let's see, it would be 52 minutes yeah. of showtime. So anyway, that was uh, interesting to realize that when you hear people laughing, they're laughing from the audience, not from a tape of someone else's better material. Does that
1: makes sense? Yeah, and the brilliance of laughing is that because you had so many gags and so many jokes, rat-a-tat-tat, one after one after one after, you can slip in a joke like the National Guard, and and before you realize what, as a viewer, before you realize what you guys actually did, you're on to like two or three jokes ahead of time.
2: Exactly. In George Slaughter's office, there was a plaque on the wall with a quote by Bigby Wolf, who helped George, they both thought of the show together and worked on it together. So Bigby really goes back to the history of laughing, but by the time I got there, he'd gone home to Australia, a heck of a guy, but his quote on the wall said, Sometimes our safety in skating over thin ice is our speed. <laughs> this is oh, true. I like that.
1: It's true. Jim Abel is with us via Zoom today, along with Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen. Jim Abel, longtime staff writer for Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Donna?
0: I'm curious, what was your relationship like with the censors? all this with the censors uh, yes one
2: of the writers was mark london and he was catholic and he was from boston and so we'd say something kind of out there and he'd say uh-uh that's not going to fly with boston the archdiocese they're you know, minute a religious kind of a thing and it's just that they were very big on censoring all television and so i i would hate to see a thing that was a good piece of material not get used guessing that they might not like it i'd, I'd say send it to them quick but stuff, you don't want to wait for a reply to come after two, you know, it's mm-hmm. keep it active in the current. That was the thing in the sensor. We would put stuff in there, we called it fly specs. We knew they'd see it and say, no, you can't have a girl walk across or whatever like that. And But two pages on was what we really wanted to say and they were so glad they found that thing about the girl walking across the ladder or something that they missed <laughs> the next two things <laughs> yeah. we slipped and, and none of them ever got anybody in trouble. And gosh, by today's standard it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? But there was I mean, an
0: element of danger then with some of the writing. Oh yeah, so, there was. It was it was bold and stuff to
2: do. We'd have a sometimes they'd say, You can't do that, it's it's dirty. And we'd go, What's dirty? And they couldn't really explain it, but they just didn't want to and I think it might have been pub what's going on in the world, they didn't wanna state what their position was. So we came up with a Dan Rowan played general bullwright i don't know if you ever saw that but in the full outfit of a four-star general he looked very him he did he looked very impressive he's a very smart guy and uh, i always like that you know because we heard that not only did the hippies like it but the guys in vietnam fighting could hardly wait to get the show because of the cute girls like goldie dancing in a bikini with stuff written all over her body but also
0: topical stuff that affected them Where they were. I remember there were times Dan Rowan would just deliver a straight line in the mix of all the comedy. Yeah. And uh, one time, I mean, because we always give Tommy Smothers so much credit, but there was one time it was, uh, I think it was a Christmas show, and there was a, you know, joke, 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 and then Dan with his pipe just goes. How about this year? Uh, we have all the troops come over to Burbank and stay at Bob Hope's house for Christmas, or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, he delivered it very straight. And I think he went to commercial right after that. And I thought this was brilliant, and only Dan Rowan could pull it off. Yeah.
2: Well, I'll tell you one thing: the Smithers brothers had this thing about Mom liked me best, or liked you best. You know? Do you remember that? Uh, yes. Oh, the yeah. Brothers, when they're, they're doing their monologue, but one would turn to the other and say, "Mom liked me best." Mm-hmm. And that kind of Dan Rowan and Dick Martin couldn't do something like that because Dan actually never knew his mother. He was left on a train in 1934. People in the Depression couldn't—they couldn't feed their family, so they put him in a basket and get on the train and leave him on the train and get off, knowing somebody would take him. That's his pretty much his
1: story. So when you mentioned his mother's brother, that was one of their strong bits. Mother always liked. But that—that that touches on something I'd like to ask you. Did you work with or did you consult Rowan and Martin? for like the material they would perform at the top of the show and at the various parts.
2: Yeah, yeah, and then we'd have a read-through. Nothing's shot yet, It's it first there's a read-through. We go in the room there and sit right, right across the street from the restaurant that we were talking about, the smokehouse, mm-hmm. and we'd run through the stuff, and Dan and Dick probably couldn't be there, especially not both, they were busy, mm-hmm. but their representative, somebody with the production company, was looking out for them, and so we never got upset with their Criticism or changes—they were—they knew the business of television better than we did.
1: So, Rowan and Martin were active participants in the writing. They weren't, uh, which, which makes sense because they're comics themselves, and so they would probably, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I would yeah. imagine they would—they would welcome the opportunity to work with you and the other writers.
2: No, they—they'd like it if they could, but they—they they really were busy doing yeah. all kinds of stuff, which was half promotion of the show and half. You know, the opportunities that they got now that they had the number one show on television. And we used to get notes from people saying, uh, you know, like this, I'm picking a name here, Sandusky, Ohio. Please move your show to another night instead of Monday night at 8 o'clock. Because that's when our city council usually meets and nobody shows up anymore. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, wow. And and that's the truth. I I could say I was bragging, but the Nielsen's show that we had 40 to 70 million people a week watching. And by the way, it aired in, and I like this because it got residuals from, from Australia, England, Germany, Japan. One thing I liked when I heard that Japan, they didn't want it with subtitles in Japanese, they wanted it in English. But this is the language they wanted to learn, the way we were messing around and doing stuff, you know, Sakatumi and all that stuff. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool that you could actually, in a small way, affect a culture of a whole entire country.
1: And you mentioned residuals. Our friends at Time Life recently re-released the entire all five and a half seasons of Laughing on DVD. Uh, So I would imagine you're getting. Excuse me, I got to go check my mailbox.
2: (laughs) 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 It'll be a Brinks truck. It's embarrassing (laughs) when the Brinks truck back in in the garage.
1: Jim Abel is with us via Zoom. Jim began his career in television and as a comedy writer, writing for Rowan and Martin's Laugh. And Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us. We hope you'll stay with us when we continue our conversation with Jim Abel here on TV Confidential.
0: Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com.
1: accredited by guinness world records welcome to archival television audio incorporated a peerless tv soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades the 1950s 60s and 70s the golden and silver age of television
0: for more information go to atvaudio.com
1: be part of our conversation if you like what you hear